just going to read uh, tonight from Ephesians. It takes a long time to get through Ephesians. There's a lot to it, and as well as that, different things get in the way, but we're looking at it tonight, and I want us to read from verse 11. Fantastic words again from the Apostle Paul, where he says that in him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you tonight that you are revealed to us in your word as our good father. And we thank you that through your word so clearly you revealed just exactly who we are in Jesus Christ. And we pray tonight that you'll help us to gain clear understanding of who we are. And even more, you'll help us to live our lives in the light of this. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just put that picture up for me. Is that okay, Steph? Just put that picture up. That's it. You can't see her too clearly. But this week I came across the story of this lady by the name of Hetty Green. She was once a familiar sad sight on the streets of New York with her grim face and strange dress. Many people in the street took pity on her. Little did they imagine that when she died, she would be found to be worth $4 billion in today's terms. But those who knew her a bit better as a result of her business dealings gave her the endearing nickname of the Witch of Wall Street. She was born into wealth, the daughter of a financier who read little Hetty's daughter's stock market reports from an early age when most children were being read fairy stories. In her career, she largely made her money by swooping in and taking advantage of the misfortune of others. She had two children, but certainly did not lavish attention on them. They lived in almost derelict, unheated rooms. They wore second-hand clothes and were poorly fed. When her son, Ned, suffered a serious leg injury, she took him to a free clinic. When someone recognized her and asked for payment, she simply took him away, resulting eventually in the amputation of his leg. Now, unsurprisingly, after his mother's death, Ned kind of reacted against this, became something of a playboy, spending his money freely. And then after his death, his sister Sylvia, who also had lived a very simple life, like her mother, inherited his money as well. But she had the ultimate final revenge on her mother. When she died, she gave almost all her money away to charity. Now that, that story is relevant to us, to what we're looking at here in Ephesians. In the central to this passage stands Paul's proclamation that we are heirs of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we need then to understand our inheritance, the nature of it. 
We need to enjoy it now, not ignore it, live as if we don't have it, and yet also realise at the same time that there is still so much more to come. But the, the fact that we are heirs in Christ isn't the only blessing that, that Paul shares with us here. Rather, in, in these verses, he, he seems almost to summarize, to recap the main blessings that become ours through faith when we become Christians. Why does he, he do this? Well, I believe that the key to understanding this lies in the way that in these verses, Paul switches from we to you. You see, previously... Paul has been speaking of himself and his fellow Jewish Christians. Does it in verse 12? We who were the first to hope in Christ. But here, at points in these verses, he moves on to you. That is, I believe, to the non-Jewish Gentile Christians who through faith in Christ have now been drawn into and included in the people of God. And you also, he says in verse 13, were included in Christ. Then, as we said, he moves on to outline some of the main blessings that become ours through that faith in Jesus Christ. So the we are Paul and his fellow Jewish Christians. The you are the Gentile non-Christians who undoubtedly form the bulk of the readers to whom This letter is addressed. Now, it's fair to acknowledge, I suppose, that there are some who who actually see this a little bit differently. They see the the we as referring to Paul and and his companions who were with him, Jews and Gentiles, a mixture, and the you to the the church in Ephesus. That was the, the kind of separate entity. However, I want to say that in the context of what Paul goes on to focus on in Ephesians chapter 2, That is that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled, that they become one in Christ, that Christ is able to break down every divided wall of hostility that exists between men, then I think that set in this context, it is most logical to see this as a Jew and Gentile thing. With Paul's emphasis being that in Christ, by faith, Now both Jewish and Gentile Christians equally are blessed by God in every way. With all of this rooted in the fact, stemming from the fact, that we are now together God's possession. Now this is something that's actually touched on and hinted on elsewhere in this passage, but it's actually in verse 14 that this is brought right out into the open. That we are those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now you see, this was a strong Old Testament theme. For example, Exodus 19.5, talking about Israel, says that you will be my treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, again the Lord speaking to Israel, it says, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. But now you see, we, with believing Israel, now we, all who have faith in Christ, we become in Christ God's possession. We belong to God. We are his. He is ours. 
And as a result of this, because we are his, we are blessed by God, his blessing flows into our lives. So in what way does Paul tell us here that as a people belonging to God, that we are blessed by our Father? Well, I would suggest first in that we are secure. Now again, I would say that this also is really a theme that runs throughout this passage. In fact, it's almost a thread that holds everything else together. But that verse 11 is the clearest statement of this. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You see, what this is telling us is that we belong to God because God has chosen us. And so that all of our life, from before time began and for all eternity, all of our life is set within the context of his will. Now, we looked at, at much of this, at, at God's choosing of us, that is, at things like election and predestination, etc. And in, in the second sermon we looked at in this, this series of Ephesians. So I, I'm not going to labor this here. Only to say to you briefly what I said then. That God chose to save us, not because of who we are, not because we are in some way worthy. No, God chose to save us because of who he is, because he is a God of love, a God who cannot help but love. That's his nature, who created us so that he could lavish love upon us. And even though we sin and we turn our back on him and rebel against him, still God can't stop loving us. So the unique New Testament love, word sorry for God's love, is agape. And that's a word whose distinctive is that this is about loving not the worthy, not the deserving, but rather this is about loving the unworthy and the undeserving. And it's because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. It's because he dealt with on the cross that sin and the offense that it caused to God. It's because Jesus removed that barrier. So we come to God through faith in Christ. Christ, perfect God, perfect man. The man who stood in my place and paid for my sin. And God who alone could pay the acceptable price. His perfect life given for us. So it's because of this that we become one of God's people. Part of his family. His possession. And because of this, we are secure. We're secure in this world. Just look at verse 11 again. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, do you see what that's saying? That's saying that everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in our lives, comes within the orbit of God's will, of his sovereign will. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that happens, happens because God willed it to happen in the sense of that God made it happen. Now rather what this means is that there's nothing that ever happens 
that takes God by surprise. What this means is that God is able to take whatever happens. And as we turn to God, as we are open to God, He's able to take that, whatever it is, and He's able to weave it in to His purposes for our lives and for this world. It's God's able to take even the very worst things that happen. And He's able to use these things. He's able to use them to draw us closer to Him. He's able to use them to show more of His glory through our lives. He's able to use these things to bring more and more of His kingdom of righteousness and justice into being here on our world. There is nothing, no situation, nothing in life that is beyond the reach of God's sovereign will. There's nothing that God cannot use to reveal his glory, to bring blessing, to extend his kingdom. You know, just think of what that must have meant to the Ephesians who first received this letter. For this great city of Ephesus, where this church was situated, this was a center of darkness, of witchcraft. Acts 19.19 tells us that when those who had formerly practiced witchcraft and become Christians that they then burned their books, they burned the scrolls that were associated with the practice of witchcraft, of that former way of life, and it tells us that the value of these scrolls amounted to 50,000 drachma. Now, just to help you grasp what this means, then let me tell you that it's been calculated that that approximates to 7 million pounds. And that's just the material that was owned by those who'd become Christians. But what that that tells us then is that this place was a hotbed of evil. And there had already been riots in Ephesus because of the growth of the church, because of the threat that they saw that Christianity posed to their culture of idolatry and everything that surrounded it. Well, don't you think that the Christians in this newly founded church would feel a bit threatened? a bit insecure, set as they were in the middle of all of this. And with good reason. Because Christians later in the Roman Empire did face incredible persecution. But you see, the church, churches like this, held on through that persecution. And Tertullian, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because what emerged out of this persecution was a church that had grown, that had grown in purity, that had grown in spirituality, and that had grown in numbers. For you see, the fact that men and women were ready to die for their faith, that opened people's hearts and minds to the gospel and to the Savior that they were ready to die for. Now the church you see in Ephesus that that received these words from Paul, at this time, they didn't know all this. They didn't know exactly what God was going to do. They didn't know exactly what lay before them. But they had faith in what God told them. They had faith in the God that they knew. So they trusted in God's promise that they were secure in Him. That despite perhaps how things maybe seemed at that time, they trusted that God was in control. And God did bless them. God did glorify himself in and through them. 
and if in whatever comes our way in life, if we do the same, if we keep hold of our trust, if we keep hold of him, he will do exactly the same in and through us. But not only are we secure in this world, in God, we're also eternally secure. For you see, God's plan, his will for our lives and for our world, his plan isn't only for this time, isn't only for this present age. No, God's plans are eternal, and we are eternally secure in him. Once by faith we belong to God, once we become his possession, then no one, nothing, can ever thwart the plans that God has for us and for this world he created. So you see, despite how things might now seem, despite ever-growing nuclear arsenals and every ever-scarier terrorists, I mean, just imagine if the two ever get together. Despite all of this, I want to tell you, things are not going to end in oblivion and total destruction. They're not. They're going to end in a recreated heaven and a recreated earth. They're going to end in the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you why. Because this is God's will, and God's will will be done. Verse 11. The God who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Our God is able to keep and our God will keep his promises. His will will not be thwarted. Revelation 21, 21 tells us that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what it says with Christ reigning in the midst. That will happen. That will be. We are secure, but that's not the only blessing that becomes ours once we belong to God. No, we are also sealed, we're told, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That having heard and believed the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, we were then, verse 13, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's helpful here, I think, to, to remind ourselves of some of the different aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Okay, so we receive the Spirit, we receive an initial baptism in the Spirit, and are from that point on indwelt by the Spirit from the moment of our conversion. That is, from the point when we hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and when we respond to it in faith. Romans 8, 9. Just read that. Then, from that point on, we are called to be filled with the Spirit by yielding our lives, by giving our lives over in an ongoing, and we pray, an ever-increasing way to the control and influence of the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So the way then that we place ourselves in the position to be increasingly filled with the Spirit of God is by focusing on, in our lives, on the things of God, on that which would lead us toward God, and by turning away 
by choosing not to involve ourselves in those things that would lead us from God. With the example Paul gives in Ephesians 5, 18 being drunkenness that can lead to acts of debauchery. And it's a bit of a sideline here. But let me just say, I sometimes think there's, there's too much dangerous playing around with alcohol among Christians today. And I'm not saying that everyone must abstain totally from alcohol as I do to live a God-pleasing life. I'm not saying that. I recommend it, but I certainly wouldn't say that's something everybody's got to do. But what I would say is, please recognize that alcohol can be dangerous. It can slowly take control over your life. It can lower your inhibitions and it can make it more likely that you will behave in ways that normally you wouldn't behave. I don't think that there are that many people in the world who could say their lives have been radically transformed by the good by drinking alcohol. Much more, it's the opposite. But you see, the seal of the Spirit fits in here in the sense that it's the mark, the stamp of God's ownership. It's the sign that God in the person of the Holy Spirit is indwelling, is at work, is in control of the life of a man or a woman. And of course, how marked that seal is, how deep that stamp goes, shows the extent to which God is actually in control of that life, shows to what degree that life is yielded to God and so filled with His Spirit. And what we're talking about here, marked, we're talking about things like a growing passion for God, a growing hunger for His Word that leads to obedience, a desire for prayer, and of course, a growing harvest in our lives of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the mark. These qualities, these are the seal that ever more clearly should be seen in the life of someone who is indwelt by the Spirit, whose life is yielded to the Spirit, and so who increasingly lives a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit of a holy God. But we've got to say, of course, that we can choose to live a very different kind of Christian life. For while every believer is sealed with the Spirit from the point of conversion, yet we can in our lives, perhaps at some point in our lives, we can choose to live a life that's not yielded to God. We can choose to turn back to sin. We can choose to not focus on God or on the things of God. We can do what 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us not to do. We can put out the Spirit's fire. And that's a warning, a spiritual reality that I think all believers need to take note of. But Paul goes on here in Ephesians 1.13 and 14. He says that the seal of the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Now here we're touching on the fact that we are heirs of God. And just what our inheritance actually is. So let's just pick this apart and try to understand what Paul's saying to us here. And first then, there's the word deposit. That the mark, the seal of the Spirit on or in our lives is a deposit marking 
our inheritance. Now, now that's a word that's actually used today by modern Greeks to speak of engagement rings. They are called arabon. That is a deposit. Well, I don't want to upset the Greeks of today, but that's actually a misuse of the ancient world. Because while an engagement ring might promise marriage, it's not actually marriage itself. And as some are painfully aware, not every engagement actually leads on to marriage. Rather, what Paul means here by deposit, by arabon, is spelled out by by John Stott. And this is what he says. A deposit on a house or or in a higher purchase agreement, however, is more than a guarantee of payment. It is itself the first installment of the purchase price. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In giving him to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it, which, however, is only a small fraction of the future endowment. I like the way that Harold Honer, though, puts this. For him, it's uncharacteristically simple, I have to say, but it's lovely. This is what he says. He says, we have a little bit of heaven in us, namely the Holy Spirit's presence and a guarantee of a lot more to come in the future. You see, this is what the seal of the Spirit is. This is what the marks, the signs of the Holy Spirit in our lives now are. They are the deposit of our inheritance. A little bit of the life of heaven worked out in our lives, but with so much more to come. And if as a Christian you maybe want this and something of, it, of its practicalities kind of laid out for you what all this means in a sequence, then Honer again, I believe, puts, puts it pretty clearly what the spiritual experience of the Christian should actually be. Here's what he says. He says, So there are two redemptions, or more accurately, two phases of redemption. The first phase was in the past, which set us free from sin and its obligation. That is, set us free from the power of sin, from the domination of sin. And then he goes on. The second phase, The second phase is future, when Christ comes for the saints. This will set us free from the presence of sin. We are already set free from sin's presence and power, but not yet from its penalty and power, but not yet from its presence and temptations. In the meantime, we have the initial installment, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as our portion. Well, we've looked at at two of the blessings that become ours because we're God's possession, because we belong to him. We're just going to look very briefly at one final one, and that is glory. For there's a phase, a phrase, sorry, that occurs twice in the verses we're looking at tonight, and that actually occurs three times in this first chapter of Ephesians. That is two or four, the praise of his glory. Now, basically, what this means, I think, is two things. That in our own lives, we're called to worship God and to live for Him. Because He is 
a gracious and loving God. And then as a result of this, because of our witness, because of this, to cause others to turn and to see him and to worship him too. Now you see, that is the ultimate aim of the Christian life. That is why the Holy Spirit was given. That is to enable us in this world of darkness and of sin, to enable us to see God's glory and to live for God's glory, and by doing so, to cause others to do the same. Now, do you get it? Life, the Christian life, it isn't all about us. It isn't about our happiness. It isn't about our pleasure. It isn't about us having a nice, easy, trouble-free, enjoyable life. No, the Christian life is about the glory of God. That's what we're called to have as our main aim, the glory of God. Now, if in living for God's glory, if then pleasure and happiness and enjoyment and all these things come our way, then there's nothing wrong with that. It's a bonus and enjoy it. But these things should never be the main aim for a Christian. And for as long as they are, we will never then know the spiritual joy and fulfillment that God desires as his people's experience. We're called to live for the glory of God. And to that end, I was delighted this week when Tim Farron announced, having been hounded by the media, that he was standing down as leader of the Liberal Democrats because he has chosen Christ. He's chosen his faith over political power and influence. Now, well, of course, in one sense, this is a tragic and a, a scary uncovering of where we actually are as a nation. That to be even suspected of believing that homosexuality is a sin, to actually believe the Bible and what it says, that that is seen as a barrier to holding office in our country today. That is scary. I mean, I I believe homosexuality is a sin. I believe that it's wrong and it's unnatural that the Bible and basic biology tells us that. But I don't believe that homosexuals should be ostracized or suffer this discrimination. I believe Christians should love homosexuals while not agreeing with their lifestyle that we should respect them and listen to them and love them. But you see, the media and the powers that be in our nation either can't or don't want to grasp that distinction. And I think it is amazing and incredible hypocrisy that those who talk, talk most about liberality and tolerance in this country are particularly in their attitude towards Christianity, but toward any who oppose their views most lacking in those very qualities. And that made me think this week, I wonder if anybody has asked Sadiq Khan, the Muslim mayor of London, if he thinks homosexuality is a sin. Because I tell you, if he's truly a Muslim, he does. And Islam's attitude towards homosexuality is much harsher than that of Christianity. But I thank God that Tim Farron in this put God first. That he lived for the praise of his glory. I believe that his witness will bear fruit. As will ours. If in the challenging days we live in, we are prepared to live lives marked and sealed by the Spirit of God to the praise of his glory.
That's God's call. May we obey that call. Let's pray together. Father, we just give you our thanks and praise that we are blessed beyond our understanding in you, that you are a good, good Father who pours out your love in these different ways into the lives of your children. Lord, we pray, help us as a people to be focused on living our lives to the praise of your glory, living in an understanding of your glory and majesty and by the way that we live, pointing others to see you for who you are. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.